0: Over the past three weeks there we go over the past three weeks, we've spent our time considering the enemies of our spiritual warfare: the world, the flesh and the devil. We took this time to understand the nature and character of each because if we do not understand our enemies, uh, we are not going to understand the nature of the battle itself. This week we move on beyond the enemies to the battlegrounds, and then over the next several weeks we're going to talk about the weapons that are utilized by our enemies on this battleground in order to seek for our destruction in this spiritual warfare that we fight. And once again I'm going to present you with three three battlegrounds, as there were three enemies, Uh, but this time we're going to consider them together as one sermon in one unit rather than break them into individual considerations. Today we consider the battlegrounds of the heart, the mind, and the body. And I want to be rather careful in my focus uh, upon this battle and to do so in a way that the Bible presents it. If you were to look at resources on spiritual warfare online or if you were to go to a Christian bookstore and read up on spiritual warfare, Uh, most of what you would find would be coming from uh, what we'd call the charismatic wing of Christianity. This is a very important topic uh, among that particular wing, spiritual warfare. And this wing spends much time and thought and consideration, particularly on the idea of the battlegrounds, uh, what is often called the territory of the warfare. The idea of territory is very important. Various places where the powers of darkness reign supreme, others where the power of light dominates, praying over various localities and such. And I have no doubt experientially that there are places where the power of darkness and the power of light have strongholds. I know I've experienced something to that effect. Uh, I've read any number of accounts and heard any number of accounts of the same. I have no doubt that there are places where there is heightened fear and confusion and deceit and anger and the like, Um, As a matter of fact, uh, I've I've spoken with some of you who have talked about, particularly this summer, uh, when all of uh, the the evil and the destruction and the riots were taking place, uh, that crossing county lines into various counties in this state would have different spirits about them. And so I I do not want to, by any means, uh, minimize the nature of that concept as it relates to uh, the power and the proliferation of unrighteousness and evil, acceptance of evil as a way of life, and what that can do even to the spirit of a society or the spirit of a particular place. But, here's my but. But we need to be careful, as with all things, in trusting our senses to be the determiner of our priorities. Because here's the thing, regardless of how much it seems darkness may or may not have these territories and light may or may not have these various territories, regardless of whatever analogies we can draw between the principles of spiritual warfare as it relates to fighting and defense and taking ground and losing ground and uh, uh, physical warfare, because when we think of spiritual concepts, it helps so much to relate them to physical ideas in order to understand them, we must state plainly that when God inspired his word he did not speak to the believers about the concepts of spiritual territory in any in-depth way. He speaks about the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Gracia, as demonic entities, it would seem, that, were, uh, that had, had uh, assignments over a certain, a certain region. He gave us no information about them, only that they exist. He speaks of strongholds, but as we'll see it today, we see Paul speak of strongholds specifically in the relation to the mind. God did not teach or ask believers to pray against demons or to make earthly spiritual strongholds or to consecrate land or anything of that sort. We do not see instructions as to that in the Bible. He did warn us against rebuking the devil directly in the book of Jude. And one of our essential foundational uh, uh, concepts, as we presented it and even as you heard it last week, that we hold fast to as a matter of course and interpretation is that we believe, particularly in areas of ambiguous study, that God told us what He wanted us to know and what we need to live in absolute victory in this life. That if you want victory, there are any number of various levels of experience that might help us understand strategies but the root of that victory is found, presented in the word of God itself. And it doesn't mean we cannot derive methods and concepts outside of the scriptures by which we experience alignment with God's word and so find victory. But we must also conclude that if God desires us to have victory, he has also given us in his word the methods to secure that victory. What we find in the Bible then is that the context of spiritual warfare is the context of a battle over the hearts and the minds of men and women. The battleground is over truth in the hearts and minds of the hearers. And where truth prevails, darkness flees. Territory or not, stronghold or not, where truth prevails, darkness flees. Where lies prevail, darkness flourishes. We saw in Psalm 13 this last week, uh, I believe, or was it Psalm 12 the week before, that when uh, men of iniquity are in, are in leadership, wickedness abounds. This concept that iniquitous men bring about emboldenedness unto wickedness is a very clear, direct, obvious concept, and this is what we find as it relates to battlegrounds. Truth brings righteousness. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Right? By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Where there is no mercy and truth, where there is no fear of the Lord, expect iniquity, expect evil. To that end... When we talk about winning the battle, we're not talking about gaining physical territory or having physical resources of that sort in that way. We are talking about redeeming the hearts and the minds of men and women out of lies and into truth. Let's talk then about the battlegrounds upon which this is fought. And as with our enemies, who could be broken up into those three primary categories or concepts, the world, the flesh, and the devil... So, too, with the battlegrounds, uh, I believe the Bible speaks of three primary battlegrounds. Again, you're not going to go to any particular scripture and see these things laid out just so. I am systematizing and combining things into a manner that uh, I b- makes sense to me and I believe gives a, a, a broad idea. I've probably missed some things. You probably know some things I don't. That's the nature of, uh, of, of how life is. Uh, but I'm going to break this into, as I said, the body, the mind, and the heart. And we're going to speak to them in that order. The first battleground we consider the battleground of the body. The body is, and and be careful to take my meaning here, the body is the least consequential of the three battlegrounds. But it is the one that is most on our minds because it's the one that we see. It is where the nature of the battle comes out, where we see its manifestations. And so it's the one we think about. It's the one that's on our minds. It's the one that's before our eyes. It's the one that, that, that frustrates us. It's the one that causes us to judge others because it is the place where we see these things happen. But make no mistake, it is the least consequential. There are two distinct ways that our bodies become the battleground for spiritual warfare, and each of the ways that it really does become a battleground for spiritual warfare is is rooted significantly more in the mind and the body than it is in the body itself. So first, our bodies are vessels through which the expressions of our heart are actualized into the physical world around us. When I'm angry, others know I'm angry because of the expressions of anger in my body, right? Right? It is the things that I do with my anger that let people know that I'm angry that, that, uh, that express my anger. And it is those expressions of anger that other people look at and say, wow, that person has a problem. But here's the thing. The anger didn't start when it left your mouth, did it? Or when you acted upon it. When did it start? It started in your heart started inside. My body is the vessel through which I experience the tangible expressions of my own sinfulness. To that end, what I do is often front and center, even though my actions are actually a symptom of a deeper cause. That's very important, Christian. When you understand the battleground, to understand the battleground in you or in your children, someone you're discipling and they're doing something that's wrong you go up to them and say you need to stop doing something don't stop don't stop with the doing why are they doing that what is happening that is causing them to do that there are a few things in this life that are purely material that the motivation for them are purely bodily But when we're talking about sin, we'll we'll, we'll continue this not just this week, but as we get into the weapons over the next several weeks and then the solutions, we're talking about things that start inside and find their way out. Second, our bodies are also a medium through which spiritual attack can come to the mind, to the heart. When my body feels hunger, when my body feels fatigue, when my body feels pain, my body the, the, the sensations of my body can actually erode, can bring about temptations or can erode my strength, right? My strength to, to fight can bring about um, a weakening of the will or of the understanding. Uh, a, a, a long time in pain can cause me to want to, uh, as in the days of Job, uh, and, and the, the expressions of Job's wife, to curse God and die. That's a temptation that is there for one specific reason. That's because of the pain that Job was in physically and through the physical circumstances that were around him, right? So it is a medium through which temptations can come. These senses felt through my body can lend themselves to expressions of sinfulness. The old adage, idle hands are the devil's playthings, right? Idle hands are not just the devil's playthings because when my hands aren't doing anything, all of a sudden they take on a mind of their own and they just want to do evil, right? No, it's because when I'm idle, when I have nothing to do, my mind and my heart start to work on their own. I get bored. I, get, I, I, I become lazy, apathetic. I start through free time. Uh, the, the sin of Sodom, as Ezekiel 16 says, was fullness of bread and abundance of time. Idleness and fullness of bread. That's what brought about The sins of Sodom so we see in our own country right that we are a fat lazy bored culture and what a fat lazy bored people do we sin so we've got we've got too much time on our hands and so we are prone to sin because we're prone to idleness and idleness begets sinfulness not because my body needs sin but because my mind and my heart have time to be tempted they're, they, they're, they, they have nothing better to do. So let's talk about each of these in turn. First, the body is the vessel through which sin is expressed. When we think of sin, naturally, we think of the things we say and the things we do. But those who have studied the words of Jesus know that this is not where sin originates, nor is the expression of the body an adequate gauge for the extent that a man has victory over sin. Sin doesn't begin in the body, in other words we've already talked just briefly about this, it is only expressed in the body in a material way. Sin begins with our hearts. And sin is sin, whether it ever takes a physical expression or not. This is an all-too-common problem, not just among the religious. It's an all-too-common problem among humanity, but but we see it perhaps more heightened among the religious or among the moralists that we focus so much on defeating sin in the body, we focus so much on what we do and what we say, things that we deem to be sinful that we cannot do or things we deem to be sinful that we cannot say without ever taking time to understand where those expressions of sinfulness originate. If you have ever had a garden, you are familiar with the concept of weeds. Weeds are an invasive plant. It grows at such a rate and with such aggression that it chokes out the life of all the plants around it. And as weeds begin to grow, I can walk through my garden, like my children like to do in the summer. I say, go pick the dandelions. And they come with a bunch of yellow heads. Daddy, look, I picked all the dandelions. Okay, so they picked all the yellow heads off the dandelions, and this is useful, right? Because if those dandelions go from yellow heads to white heads, then I've got a bigger problem on my hand. But, that being said, the fact that they picked all the yellow heads off of the dandelions did not take care of my weed problem. I can pick the yellow heads off the tops of the dandelions all day, but they're going to keep growing back again and again and again because the life of the weed is still there. The root is still there. Even if the weed isn't manifesting itself openly, even if I don't see heads on top of those dandelions, those dandelions still exist, that invasive plant is still there, the problem has not gone away, and this weed will continue to grow again and again and again. And to whatever extent I might find success in just taking off the heads of the dandelions, it will only be to the extent that my constant time and my constant effort are pulling the heads off of the same weed again and again and again. And you know what? A lot of people live their lives this way as it relates to sin. You are manifesting sin in your body, whether that be some actual material sin or whether it be anger or or pride or selfishness or lust or covetousness or whatever it is, and you're seeing the manifestations of these, and we spend all of our time plucking off the heads of those Dandelions of sin. While never even stopping to think about whether or not there's a root that needs to be pulled out. Where that root is. What is feeding that root. And how to get it out. How to root it out of our lives. If I want to get rid of the weed, the solution is to pull it out by the root. The root is the part that I cannot see because it's underground but which is the life of the weed. And as long as the root exists, the same topsoil expressions are going to keep coming, or or a different topsoil expression of the same root. So I might tamp down one sinful expression of covetousness, only to have another one pop up. And this is what, this is what, what I deal with in the jail quite often. I try to help people understand that it's not enough for them to solve their issue by tamping down one manifestation of intemperance only to allow another socially acceptable one to pop up so that they won't go to jail again because now they have a socially acceptable dandelion pop up over here, but it's the same root. They've not dealt with the root. When the root is gone, however... I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about little yellow heads in my yard if, I, if the root's gone, if I've pulled out the weed. And this illustration applies to this concept of sin. The problem I have with sin is not in, inherently the problem of what I am doing or saying, not inherently the problem of what is being manifest in my body. It's just the part of the sin that's coming above the soil. The root of my sin is somewhere in my heart, or in my mind. It's deeper. And this is one of the great messages of Jesus when he came to this earth, was it not? He came to a group of people who we would call today Orthodox Jews. They had erected a system of rules. They had put those rules in place so that they could externally deal with all the dandelions in their lives. They they, they had a system of popping the heads off of those dandelions that was just very, very well done. And so they had this system of rules, and they sought to it constantly through great effort, through tremendous amount of maintenance, pulling the tops off of every weed so that the garden of their society appeared to be quite nice. But it actually looked more like my yard, where I can get rid of the dandelions, but still half the yard is green weeds. That was basically Jewish society, right? It wasn't lush grass. It was basically weed grass. Underground, those roots remained and were growing. And it choked out the capacity of the people to thrive because while their society looked good on the outside, mercy and truth was not the foundation. The foundation was iniquity. Jesus taught us in his ministry that sin in one's life cannot just be gauged by what one sees in the body, but by the roots. So he said in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, this is a little bit into his teaching on this. I'm just using this part as an example. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his already in his heart. Jesus tells the listeners that their philosophy and their standard of sin, the sin of adultery in this case, and he talked about murder and such as well. We're just using this one as an example because it's concise and it, it 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 brings the point home nicely. This idea in society, the standard of sin, was that. Adultery is when a man is physically unfaithful to his spouse. But then Jesus corrects the sentiment on a spiritual level, saying that if a man lusts after another woman, a standard not of action but of heart and mind, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, even if the sin doesn't break the surface into physical action, if the root is still active in the heart, there is still an element of sin there. And just because I can tamp down the physical manifestations of a sin does not mean the sin is not there. And Jesus did this in order to make us Ever, in order to take everyone and, and bring them to this level playing field whereby we recognize that just because I might have more self-discipline in my life or just because I might uh, have a, a standard uh, of society erected in my life whereby I am able to avoid some of the physical consequences of the manifestations of sin in my life does not make me a better person than anyone else. Just because I grew up in a Christian home, believer, and so I was shielded from some of the deeper negative repercussions of a life of sin does not make me any less sinful than the people I sit across from in the jail every week. That's important for us to know. It's important for those people I sit across from to know that as I sit across from them, there is no less potential in my heart for sin than theirs. This is important it levels the playing field, doesn't it? So that the gospel is not just for a single socioeconomic class. The gospel is not just for a single outworking of of religious heritage. The gospel is not just for a, a single culture or group of people. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Regardless of how it culturally manifests or does not in my body. I know what's here, and you know what's here. None of this is intended to minimize the reality of sinful expressions in our body, but only to say that we will never successfully defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil, these enemies, in our lives, if we only focus upon the way that they manifest themselves in our bodies. And to this end, the battle over expressions of sin in our lives serves only to confirm the existence of the problem so that I know that I need to fight it. In other words, if I'm still dealing with physical manifestations of a sin, here's what I know. There's something deeper in my heart that needs to be dealt with. I cannot just discipline that sin out of my life and say, I'm good now. I've got to deal with what it is in the heart. Parents, I cannot stress enough how important this is for you. I cannot stress enough how important it is that when you see manifestations of sin in your children, you are are dealing with their heart, not just with their body. That you are understanding where it's coming from, what, what the root is, what is the besetting sin that this child is dealing with, What is it that brings that sin about and how can you help them control it in their heart, not just controlling their actions? A sinful person can have a tremendous capacity to control their actions. But that is not what a Christian is. A Christian is not a well-self-disciplined, self-regulated person, and that's it. Jesus came, and the question was, what's so different between Christianity and Judaism? You can point to Matthew chapter 5. One says it's all about the externals. It doesn't matter what your heart looks like. You're a good person as long as you do good things. The other says, check your heart. You're not a good person. Flee to Christ he's the good person. Be righteous through him. A second element to the battleground of our bodies, which is in some ways more consequential to the deeper battles at hand. The body is the vessel through which sin of the mind and heart can be inspired. This is, I would believe, more consequential in, of the two ways. The body becomes the means by which the world, the flesh, and the devil attack the inner man. This has been a tactic of Satan recorded in the scriptures all the way back to the book of Job. I've referenced Job a lot in this series. Uh, Don't expect that to stop. Job is an important element of insight into the spiritual battle. Why? Because that's where God peels back the curtain, right? We don't see a lot of times where God peels back the curtain on the spiritual battle. We don't see a bunch of times where Satan comes before God and has a conversation with him about how to tempt man. We don't see the, man, the, the, the ways in which that temptation fleshes itself out after that conversation. We see it in Job. And so we go to Job for these things. We've talked about it. Well, let's, let's talk about it some more. In Job, Satan presents himself before the Lord, and the Lord asks if Satan has considered bringing accusations against Job. Satan replies that he could not because Job served God, that Job was a righteous man, and Job did so Satan says, because he was divinely protected, but that if God would lift this divine protection from off of Job so that Satan could prove Job through temptation, that it would be very clear that Job did not serve God for naught. In other words, Job did not just serve God for the sake of loving God, but rather Job served God only because of what Job got out of the bargain. Job was only serving God because God was good to him. And so God says, let's take up the challenge. And at that moment, Job's blessings ended. For God allowed Satan to touch Job's life. Not his life just yet. To touch Job's possessions. Not his body. Satan does exactly that, right? Satan causes Job's livelihood to be undone. Satan causes Job's servants to be destroyed. Satan causes Job's ten children, seven sons and three daughters, to be killed in a single afternoon. And Job does not sin against the Lord. Job does not charge him falsely. So Satan returns to the throne of God. And he picks up again, and we'll, we'll pick up the second account with him in Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them into the presence of Uh, 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 them, excuse me, to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Satan said, touch his, touch his blessings and he'll curse you. God allowed his blessings to be touched. Job did not curse him. Satan said, well, let's take it to the next level. Sure, you know, a guy loses his kids and a guy loses his livelihood and, and, he, and he says, uh, easy come, easy go, Right? There's always more money where that came from. No big deal, God. But if you touch his body, then, then he'll he'll curse you. That's when it will become real. That's, if nothing else, he'll he'll put himself above you. Even if he didn't care enough for his kids or care enough for his servants or care enough for his possessions, he cares enough for himself, no doubt. Verse 5. But put forth thy hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So Satan's argument here is that Job was touched by the loss of his possessions, but it didn't strike to the core of his selfishness. It didn't strike to the core. It didn't, it didn't strike close enough to cause him to curse God. But if, if you take the very core of him, the selfish, self-preservation part of a man, then he will certainly abandon hope in God. And this is the battleground of the body, right? This is the idea that when we are tired or when we are hungry, that when we face physical illness or injury, that when we are in pain or even, as we see in our age, in a, in a very different way, that when we are so materially rich that we say, as the Church of Laodicea did, I am rich and, have, and full and have need of nothing, right? Then this becomes an avenue by which temptation can come. In these circumstances, it becomes more difficult to resist temptation, and the mind and the heart become susceptible to Satan's deceits. And this is the battleground of the body, not so much the actual place of the battle itself in a sense, but both as an expression of what's happening in my heart and as a means of Satan weakening, confusing, bringing about apathy or laziness. The body is the medium through which most of these temptations seek to their expected end, which is the mind and the heart. So we move on next to the mind, and it is here that I want to be careful in my distinction between the mind and the heart. In the Bible and in all of history, people have used single parts of the body to represent larger concepts which are much more difficult to express on their own. Uh, Really, in many ways, as we look into the Word of God, all life is kind of a metaphor, right? You can find metaphors for spiritual concepts throughout any number of elements of life. Some of the most well-known of these, of course, is marriage whereas where marriage is a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his church. There is this mystical union that we cannot fully comprehend, and yet God says the best way to comprehend it is to look to the nature of the relationship between the man and the woman. We see the same thing with family, right, with the father and the children, that we see in this relationship between father and children a spiritual concept between God as father and we as God's children, and and those concepts come up regularly. We also see this, interestingly enough, in various body parts, that we use body parts as a means by which to express physical concepts. So, the heart being the most obvious of these in the Bible, as well as in society, right? So, we find the heart used all over the Bible. I think uh, I'll have it written down here in a little bit, some 550 times in the Old Testament and 100-something times in the New Testament, we see the concept of a person's heart. And we see the ideas in, not just in the Bible, but in culture. The, the idea of follow your heart is a catchphrase that has been uh, pervasive in culture for some time. Now, when, when someone hears follow your heart, if they're a natural English speaker who understands idiom, if they're not, I'm sure that's a weird statement, but if they're a natural English speaker who understands idioms, they're not literally going to be chasing their heart anywhere, right? Heart stays in my chest. That's, that's where it stays. If it's not there, I've got bigger problems. But the idea is that uh, following my heart is that there is an emotional tug that is causing, that is, is, is imposing upon itself a pressure to make certain decisions. And the idea of follow your heart is do what you feel best as it relates to volition. The heart, of course, is not the only one that we find in the Bible. We find the mind, which is what we'll be talking about in a moment. We also find the bowels, right? Literally intestines. And we see the idea that someone's bowels yearned upon someone else. In a literal sense, that's weird. But when we understand the idiom, we understand that the bowels are the seat of intense emotion and love. Kidneys are found, actually, quite often. When the Bible talks about trying your reins, the reins of your heart, the idea of, of the reins, right, which would be uh, the, the concept of that which directs a horse, right, the, the reins of a horse, that the word there literally, reins, is, is literally kidneys. And it speaks of that, that part of a man that controls him, that directs him, his conscience. The liver is used in the Bible as the seat of passion, so on and so forth. We see a lot of these eyes, ears, mouth, feet, right? all all of these metaphors. So we have in many passages regarding temptations and snares the concept of the mind and the concept of the heart. And there are people who will say that these are synonymous, and that's fine. I have no beef with someone who says, well, the mind and the heart are synonymous, but I would also not necessarily see it as so. The heart in the Bible and in culture speaks far more of that which we would associate with feeling unto volition, is the way I would say it. How I feel unto decisions I'm going to make whereas the mind would be reason unto volition, right? So heart, emotion, or feeling unto volitional choices, how I feel unto what I'm going to do or or the decision I'm going to make. The mind is how I reason unto the choices that I am going to make. So the heart, Uh, some would call it their gut feeling, their natural inclination, or their base instinct, not the deepest feelings of emotions like the bowels, but rather the sensibilities intrinsic in our perception of the world that lead to feeling how we feel or, the de- or, or, or feeling how we would to make the decisions that we make. The mind in Bible and culture seems to speak far more about, again, reason unto volition, that which drives us to rational, considered thoughts bringing about choices. And that doesn't necessarily mean bringing about the better decision. By the way, whether or not we're talking about the mind or the heart, it doesn't mean that the mind always makes the right decision and the heart always makes the wrong decision. Uh-uh. Just because a, uh, you make a reasoned or a considered decision does not mean it's an accurate decision. Just because you make a feelings-based decision does not make it an inaccurate decision. We're not talking about the accuracy of the inaccuracy. We're simply talking about the root of motivation, And if any of you have lived any amount of time, you know that feeling and reason are not always going to be in agreement, so that generally one is subservient to the other at any given time, so that I'll allow reason to guide my will, or I'll allow feelings to guide my will, or I'll allow my will to guide what I reason, or my feelings to guide how I reason. And both will and reason are subject either to the flesh or the spirit at any given point of time. So there's a lot of moving parts between feelings, thinking, mind, body, heart. Um, you know, my mind and my heart are less inclined unto obedience or submission when my body is hungry, or tired, or in pain. It, it all comes together, but 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 there are these there are these interplays between them. So I do distinguish between the mind and the heart in my teaching as I consider these battlegrounds upon which our spiritual lives are fought. And I want to begin with the mind here. The mind is the seat of reason. The reality of the mind as a battleground is one that Paul speaks to specifically and so is generally without controversy. We read this in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though I walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, excuse me, we do not war after the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul expresses here the fact that in the warfare we wage, in the context of the spiritual, which is this context there in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons we use are not weapons of physical warfare. I cannot stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil with guns and knives and think that I'm going to win this battle. That is not how you fight this war. I can't sit on my porch with a shotgun and expect that because I'm sitting on my porch with a shotgun, I'm not going to be tempted that day. It does not work that way. Spiritual weapons are made by God, through God, unto spiritual victory. And what these weapons allow us to do is to pull down spiritual strongholds. Now, we're not talking here about what we'll see in a moment. We're not talking here about walking into a, a city and saying, we're going to pull down a stronghold that's in this city, this territory. That's not, that's not the idea here. The idea here is spiritual strongholds are strongholds of the mind. Paul makes that clear. He elaborates on what it looks like to cast down these strongholds. First, he says, casting down imaginations. That word imaginations there literally means computation or reasoning. It's an accounting term to compute or to tally everything up. Now, don't let this concept be one of revulsion to you. Uh, We we, uh, hear this saying, well, faith is against reason. Faith is not reasonable. Uh, Here, Paul even says that in order to to fight this spiritual warfare, you have to cast down computation. You have to cast down logic. You have to cast down reasoning. No, that's not what this is saying here. Faith is not against reason, but faith is often in contradiction to the way people reason. May I say that again? Faith is not inherently contrary to reason, but faith is often contrary to the way people reason. Because people reason, out, reason things out in a way that contradicts reality. If you reason from a false premise, you're not going to come to the right answer. If I, if I have a math problem and I use the wrong formula, well, I'm using math, but if I use the wrong formula, I'm not going to get the right answer. And so it's not that we're casting out All reason, but we are casting out, casting down imaginations when I allow my the the earthly things of this life, walking by senses, walking by sight, walking by feeling, walking by reason over walking by faith. People reason things out in a way that often contradicts reality when their reason is not accompanied by an understanding of reality as it exists. They come from the premise of lies rather than the premise of truth. So Paul says that the weapons of God's warfare help us cast down the stronghold of proud and errant reasoning in the mind that would seek to exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And second, to bring every thought captive or make it, bringing into captivity, make every thought captive to Christ. And these are two sides of the same coin here. To align our minds with the reality of of the world around us as God has revealed it through the fullest expression of himself to mankind. The word of God incarnate Jesus Christ. And you see here how these become two sides of the same coin. I cast down the false reasoning by placing my foundation not upon man's thoughts man's ideas, what I see, how I feel, but upon the truths of God's word. And then from there, I can build up that which is true. And thus, I can cast down that which is false. I align myself with truth. And what does it look like? Well, Philippians 2, we're not going to go there today. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Being in the form of man, thought it not robbery; uh, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's the mind of Christ. Just before that, by love, serve one another. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is casting down imaginations. This is casting down false thinking. This is casting down the reasoning of this world and, and, and submitting it, subjecting it to the knowledge of Christ. And then I can reason out of the mind of Christ that which is true as it relates to reality. Paul warns his readers about this battle of the mind several times throughout the New Testament, even expressing the extent to which Satan has blinded and clouded the mind's of men against the truth of God's word. And this is the battle. It's a battle over truth, Christian. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the, uh, of the Lord, men depart from evil. This is the battlegrounds. This is what we're fighting against. You're not fighting against men's outward expressions of sin. You're fighting against the, 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 the captive hold of sin on, in their minds and in their hearts. Not against them, against the sin that, that, that has dominated them. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we'll see this again next week. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily philosophy and vain deceit, following the traditions of men, following the rudiments of this world. These are the enemy's battlegrounds. He, if, if, if he can take those things and root them in our hearts, excuse me, those are his, those are his weapons, sorry I will talk about it next week, in our battleground. If he can root these things in our minds, in our hearts, then he will, he will be able to win that battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, "'If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost.'" in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The God of this world, through his deceits, through his lies, through this reason that is divorced from knowledge of God, through this reason that is removed from reality as it truly exists, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that the unbeliever hears the preaching of the cross and it is foolishness unto him, even though it is the deepest expression of wisdom. Because their minds have been blinded by an absolutely unrealistic orientation to this world. They have no frame of reference to understand the truths of God's word because they have placed their frame of reference in a bed of lies. So they hold their knowledge captive to the reasoning of their own minds, denying the light of the gospel to shine into their hearts by blocking it in their mind. And again in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 17 and 18, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Here we have both the heart and the mind. The darkness of their minds, the blindness of their hearts, the vanity of their minds, pride which clouds a man's reasoning, darkens their understanding through ignorance, ignorance compelled by the blindness of their hearts, where these two work in tandem, because what they're, they're feeling unto volition says, I want to do what I want to do, and what they're believing says, aha, the, the, the world as it exists, as my senses see it, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel like the mind of Christ, therefore I reject this thing. And this allows us to transition between the mind and the heart because I must hasten on. So much more we could say. We transition from the the, the nature of reason unto decision to feeling unto decision. That even when men's reasoning is informed by the truth, they are just as much informed by their senses. So that men's desires and intents can utterly overcome even any amount of reasoning or evidence. I mean, did not the Pharisees and Sadducees watch Lazarus raised from the dead And every amount of reasoning in them says, This man just rose from the dead, and yet their heart compels them not to believe, but rather to say, How can we kill this man that just rose from the dead? And we begin right here in Ephesians 4. The blindness of their hearts. The blindness of the unbeliever's heart combined with the vanity of their mind causing their understanding to be darkened. And it leads to an inevitable result. I read you Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. The inevitable result is verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Brought to a place of being past feeling, what does it mean? Where the pangs of conscience and the nature of truth no longer bother them anymore. Where they are no longer feeling the same pull and tug of that natural created part of them that recognizes the innate morality and immorality as God has laid it out. And they manifest this apathy in the works of their body. But the body is not where the battle is raging, Christian. When we see an unbeliever, or a believer for that matter, working lasciviousness and uncleanness with greediness, The problem is manifesting in the body, but there's something more going on, and you have to know that. What they do in their bodies is only a manifestation of what is resting under the surface. There's a root to that weed. There is no lack of exhortation in Scripture regarding the heart, and indeed we could. I was tempted to spend three weeks on this, body, mind, heart. (laughs) I thought we'd move a little faster, though. Yep, the heart. Used 550 times in the Old Testament, 152 times in the New Testament. That's where that was. And so we see these things. We see these warnings. We see a warning in Proverbs 4.32. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Out of the heart flows my intentions, my desires, my goals, my ambitions. The heart is the center of my being. But the heart also is, as Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? To this end, it is a fool's errand to trust my heart. And much to the contrary, as with the mind, my affections and my desires must, through diligent faith, be submitted to Christ if they are going to be properly related to this world. Where I must combine the recognition of my mind on the truths of God's word, casting down the strongholds, the imaginations that would exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And then I must combine that with drawing into my being a submission to the will of God above the will of my own. And that is the battle of my heart. The battle of my mind is the battle of believing uh, uh, the the world as it exists and and, and, and placing myself in relation to it. The battle of uh, of my heart is submitting to it, to that reality. Of being willing to say, God, not my will, but thy will be done. Of setting myself aside to do what God wants me to do. And that's the battle of my heart. And various groups of Christians have various, um, I I think, you know, Christians tend to segregate themselves by any number of things. One of the things that Christians tend to, to group by is spiritual gifts. Another thing that Christians tend to group by is propensity unto certain temptations, failures, or sins. And so there are certain groups of Christians that will tend to congregate together and they struggle more with the battles of the mind. And then there are others that might struggle more with the battles of the heart. We would probably tend to be more of a battle of, uh, and I'm broad brushing here, I know every person is individual and you all have your own battles, but as a general rule, people in our our circle would, would tend to be more battle of the heart people. That we know the truth. And we have, generally speaking, related ourselves to the truth as it relates to the strongholds of casting down imaginations. But what we struggle to do is obey, like submit, right? Whereas other people have all the desire in the world to submit, but they have not related themselves properly to, to the truth. And we need to find this balance. We need to have both in their place. We must uh, wrap this up for the sake of time. But I want to go to one more verse as it relates to the heart. And again, when we talk about how to fight this battle, we're going we're to see a lot more of these exhortations. But Jesus said in Matthew six twenty one, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The world, the flesh, and the devil are in a constant battle for your heart, for your mind. The world, the flesh, and the devil want us to be held in darkness, kept distracted through the cares of this life. Draw our affections away from God onto the things of this life. Keep our eyes upon ourselves rather than our eyes upon the Lord. It's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? And not just on ourselves, but on the things that are happening around us. It's so easy to be like Peter when he stepped out of the boat and the winds and the waves were raging around him and you looked around and you begin to sink. So easy to be like Peter Any of the disciples, any of the other disciples who stayed on the boat. (laughs) And our treasures, our priorities will reveal where our heart is. We'll reveal the things that we have placed our affections upon. We'll reveal whether or not we have or are being successful in any given area of life at submitting that area of life to Christ. And so when my children are threatened or my wife is threatened, not necessarily someone making a physical threat, but something about their well-being is threatened, whether that's illness, whether that is a physical threat, whatever it might be, so that when my possessions are threatened, so that when my honor is threatened, so that when my, my, my pride is chinked, so that when my, my own body through illness or through frailty is, is, is uh, um, uh, threatened, I begin to see where my heart is by where my treasures are. I begin to see how my heart is doing by how I respond. I see these things through trials and through temptations. And again, what I'm finding here is the roots, not the, ye- not the yellow heads of the weed. That is where our battleground lies. So it becomes battleground for the enemy to attempt to exploit through our bodies, our mind and our heart. And a significant portion of the New Testament compels us unto guarding and guiding our hearts, the seat of our faith. And without faith, we know it's impossible to please him. These are the battlegrounds of our spiritual warfare. Manifest in our bodies, rooted in our mind and in our heart. And if we're going to successfully fight this warfare, we need to understand the relationships between these things. The things we do that frustrate us because they are sins of the flesh. And the things happening below the surface in the mind and in the heart that are allowing those sins to manifest. And the ways that this warfare can manifest itself are... Numerous, Maybe it is some sin you feel that you cannot conquer and you have worked to externally discipline yourself and you've tried to take away the temptations, separate yourself, and it's like it's chasing you down. It's following you and you just can't get rid of it. There's something under the surface, Christian. There's something there in your heart or in your mind. There's some element of there's a weed where the root has not been pulled out. Find it. Find that weed, and don't just pop the head off of it, because it's just growing back. Find the root. If you need help, get help to find the root. Maybe, parents, you're struggling with a child who's acting in a manner unbecoming. You're training, unbecoming Christ. You're concerned. You see what they're doing, But let me ask you, do you know what's happening under the surface? What is in their mind? What is in their heart? What are they dealing with? Is it some measure of unforgiveness? Is there unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment? We're going to talk about these over the next three weeks. Is there some uh, uh, um, anger? Is it some experience that they haven't been able to deal with? Is it some, some deeper temptation, some deeper frustration? What's going on in them, not, not, not out of them? Where's the root to that weed? Maybe, and when you, maybe it is that, that you've just got a weed garden because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. That's, of course, where all of this starts, right? The weeds can't come out of the soil until the Spirit of God is indwelling until we have that change of heart and change of mind. Until then, all the world can do is pop heads off weeds. That's all they can do. Only in Christ can we dig out roots. Can he dig out our roots? Maybe you're discouraged in your mind because of pain or suffering in your body or because of illness or injury. Or pain or suffering in your mind or heart because of mistreatment, betrayal, the loss of a friend, the loss of a loved one, the wayward le- waywardness or rebellion of one that you love. Some past experience that you're still holding on to. Maybe it's science so-called, vain philosophy, religiosity that is in your mind and has placed its tentacles there and you can't unroot those. the, the, the science so-called and, and it's causing doubts and it's causing fears. Where's Where's the root of that? What's it, wh- 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 where, where is that tap root? Don't just pop off the, the heads one by one. Find that root. Maybe your thoughts are completely out of control and drive you to any number of anxieties and frustrations or to fears or to lusts. Maybe your emotions are driving the driving factor in your life, drawing you into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, drawing your affections to things of this world because you are driven by your feelings, by your impulses, by your urges. Whatever the case, the first thing to do is to identify that these are the battlegrounds where where, where the fight is taking place, that it's not Uh, uh, that the fight is not taking place in you having to discipline yourself out of sin. That the fight is taking place somewhere in your heart or in your mind that there's something happening in you spiritually if you're a believer that is hindering the capacity of God to work in you victory. You see the outworking of the problem and then you trace that back to its root. Understand what the role the world, the flesh, and the devil is playing. And begin to orient yourself properly. Cast down those strongholds. Align yourself with that which is aligned with the knowledge of Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Now next time we're together, we're going to begin talking through these scenarios. Talking through these, the, the weapons that our enemy uses. And this is going to take three weeks. I had actually just like this week, I pared it down to one message, and then as I wrote it, it became three again. So there you go. We'll have it for three weeks. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing upon the Word of God and the nature of these battles. All, not all, but many of the manifestations of these battles. I hope it will help you see the weapons of your warfare. And then then we're just going to turn our eyes to victory. And we're going to spend weeks, uh, several weeks, a number of weeks on all of the passages on victory. To fight this spiritual battle and be victorious over it. And that's the point. That's what we're doing here. That we can find those things in our lives that are making us ineffective for Christ, holding us back from the truths of God, so that we can find true victory in the spiritual battle. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for God's people and I ask that you'd help them as we talk through these things to identify in their lives where. Their battlegrounds are rag- the, the battlegrounds upon which these fights are raging. That you would give us insight to know what's happening in our minds, what's happening in our hearts, where it is that, that the root of our external actions finds its place, its center, so that we can stop just popping heads off of the weeds of sin in our lives and we can start digging out the roots. I ask that, uh, well, there's only one way that this can happen, and that's by bringing these things into captivity onto the knowledge of Christ. And I pray that that would be the, the case, that this would be the beginning of great victory in the lives of many who have been struggling with any number of, str- uh, of, of difficulties, of, of fears, of anxieties, of angers, of, uh, of, of manifestations of sin, of discouragement, of confusion, of all of those things that are not of the Lord but are of the flesh, that we may be a glorious church as you would have us to be. ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.